There were only 18 months between my sister's age and mine, and, although I was the elder, she dominated me. There was almost no difference in our heights, and not much in our figures. She had a pretty face with fairer skin and sunnier hair. Unobserving persons thought we looked alike. Dressing alike until we were sixteen, we were often asked by strangers if we were twins. Those who mistook one for the other could not have been very discriminating, for with the marked difference in our natures, there must have been, even in childhood, a corresponding difference in our looks. I was quiet, shy, and dreamy, Kate lively, active, outspoken. She had to take the lead because I would hang back. In church, when we were little things, she would fix a place for my head on her lap, then pull me down and pet me, whispering to me to keep still and go to sleep, and, although I knew I should have been the one to play that role, I would submit, while she carried out to the finish her assumed dignity. How quick-witted she was! One summer father had a certain pear tree that yielded only a few choice pears, which he was jealously watching. We children had been admonished not to touch them. One day as father walked around the yard, he hesitated before the ripening pears, then passed on. We thought him waiting unnecessarily long, one was surely dead ripe. That afternoon, while he was taking his Sunday nap, Kate picked that pear. She had just bitten into it as father appeared. Putting both hands behind her, she edged backward in the yard till she stood under the astrakhan tree, frightened, but gamey. Catherine, come here, father called sternly. She came slowly, hands behind her and mouth full of the big bite she was vainly trying to swallow. What have you in your mouth? A gulp, and she said, nothing, opening wide her little mouth. Let me see your hand. Out from behind her came the right hand. Let me see your other hand. Back went her right hand, out came her left, the pair still invisible. Let me see both hands, said father relentlessly. Quick as thought the little minx lifted her leg, and, hands still behind her, thrust the pair between her thighs, and calmly held out both hands. Father's anger vanished. Kate never resorted to deceit, and almost never to untruths, unless hard-pressed. While my own hypocrisies were subtle, hers were palpable. But I long cherished resentment for one offense an unusual one with her, mother had a bed of choice tulips her special pride, our special temptation. Kate succumbed one day, picking nearly all of them, and with such short stems they were useless. Mother's anger really frightened Kate, who declared, Jeannie did it. Though denying it, I probably acted guilty, for mother believed her. I always blushed and looked the culprit in school if a general accusation was made, and if anyone rapped on the door and asked if a certain article had been found, I used to feel so uncomfortable it is a wonder I was not accused of having stolen its self-conscious little snip that I was. To punish me for my supposed falsehood mother put red pepper on my tongue a practice, which a cousin had told her that she followed with her children. It was terrible, and was all the worse because I was innocent, though I've no doubt it was good for me, for I was more given to prevarication than was sister. My tendency to exaggerate was the cause of my fibs, they were usually harmless ones, 
facts never seem startling enough, I like to embellish them. Then, too, I was always making mistakes about quantities or anything with figures or distances, and some of my misstatements should be set down to this weakness rather than to deliberate deception. In this very matter, years after, when speaking of this red pepper punishment, I used to say that my mother put a teaspoonful of red pepper on my tongue. I can't remember that anyone ever questioned or corrected the statement. I probably told it mostly to children. It is only within a few years that, telling the story again, my own common sense, so late to develop, showed me that that must have been a gross exaggeration a teaspoonful of cayenne pepper on a child's tongue, the red pepper had punished one lie that had never been told, but had given rise to one that I had gone on repeating until at last I had sense enough to see that it was too preposterous to be believed. Similarly in the matter of my weight, I had heard it mentioned it was probably fifty pounds, but with my usual inaccuracy for figures I solemnly protested that I weighed five pounds, standing my ground even when corrected, till the absurdity of it was shown me. I remember, too, hearing mother talking with some women about how young a certain neighbor was when her daughter was born. In telling the schoolgirls about it later, I announced that Mrs. H. was only five years older than her daughter Ida. Shouts of derision greeted my statement, but I was firm. One big girl called me little fool, and I suffered I know not what ridicule. It was partly an exaggeration, partly ignorance. Grasping the main fact that the mother was very young when her child was born, and having forgotten how young, but wanting to make my story worthwhile, I had resorted to a positive statement, which I stoutly maintained. I could not see why those girls should doubt my word, even if the statement was startling. Of course, it was unusual that was why I had cited it. I have a fellow feeling for the Vassar student who, when asked by the resident woman physician what her paternal grandfather died of, and not knowing, but wishing not to seem ignorant, said, I think he died in infancy. For years I was not a little given to reporting bright things people might have said, as though they had said them. It was such fun to embellish commonplace events and comments with additions of my own. Whenever I would tell these untruths I always had a queer feeling, almost of disappointment, to find that nothing happened to me, that no one questioned them, and that everything went on just as before the lie had slipped off my tongue. I don't know whether I expected Ananias's and Sapphire's fate, or what, but I expected something, and nothing happened. This tendency to exaggeration and misstatement, and, on occasion, to deliberate falsehood, I have tried conscientiously to overcome. In fact, for years I swung far to the other side. Now, in matters of fact, I think I am more often scrupulously accurate than not. If I cannot be accurate, I refrain from giving a definite statement. My special training in later years of course helped in this respect. But it was earlier, when I became a Christian, that this tendency appeared to me in all its heinousness, and in striving to overcome it I became, for a time, almost morbidly conscientious. One day in school the word conscientious came up for discussion. I was not present, but learned from one of the girls that Prof had spoken out in school freely, using my name as an example of what conscientiousness meant. But my wise little sister, 
and how I loved her for it, though pleased at the reference to me, went to all the girls she thought likely to mention it to me, and cautioned them not to. When I learned of it, from one who never could keep a secret, I asked why sister didn't want her to tell me. Oh, she said it would make you proud, or something like that. And she was right. I was too self-conscious as it was, and vain, in a demure kind of way. Kate knew my weaknesses. Sister's deceits, as I have said, were such funny ones, they never deceived anyone were never really intended to, they were only desperate measures resorted to when in a tight place, their drollery usually serving to protect her from punishment. As a rule she and brother managed to quarrel when left to their own devices. I played the peacemaker between them, and have done it ever since. One Sunday, when we stayed home from church, they got into a wrangle. Spiteful words led to threats, and Kate was soon chasing Arthur round the room in childish rage, I trying to intervene. In the squabble my belt fell off a black shiny belt with a metal buckle. As Kate could not reach Arthur, she grabbed up my belt and, brandishing it in the air, chased him, trying to hit him. Crash! Went the buckle against the rosewood mirror. When father and mother came home, and saw that crack in the mirror, they saw also three guilty apprehensive children. Brother and sister pitched in, telling about the quarrel, who did this, and who did that. I don't care about who started it, or who kept it up, said father, I want to know who broke that looking glass the one to blame for that will be punished. Jeannie is to blame for it, Kate promptly rejoined. Father looked at me in surprise, Arthur opened his mouth in wonderment, while I stood dumb and guilty looking beyond question. Then Kate added. Arthur hit me, and I chased him with the belt, and the buckle broke the glass, and it was Jeannie's belt buckle. She escaped punishment. We had fewer playthings than children have nowadays, but for that very reason they meant more to us. I had but two dolls in my childhood, and one is still living, I was about to say. One was a leather-head doll, with painted cheeks, black hair, and blue, blue eyes. But in the beginning of her career she met a strange fate a boy much bigger than I snatched her from me and bit off her nose before my very eyes. This was one of my earliest griefs. I hated that boy but cherished the noseless doll for many years. Later Kate and I had big wax dolls whose eyes would open and shut and who would cry when we pressed a little place in the pit of the stomach. We played with them only on state occasions. They were kept up in the front bedroom in a bureau drawer. I saw them a year ago. They had on the same scarlet wool dresses trimmed with narrow black velvet ribbon, but the dresses were moth-eaten and the dolls showed the ravages of time. Occasionally, other relatives joining us, we had a family Christmas tree perhaps only four or five in our childhood. But there was always the hope of one, and when there was one, the joy recompensed for the lean years. One Christmas tree at Aunt Lucinda's at which some Western relatives were present, stands out vividly the big house overflowing with people, the smell of the dinner preparing, the air of mystery of the elders as they went to and fro to the parlor with various parcels, and then, at last, when the doors swung open, and we got that first glimpse of the blessed tree. But how was my joy modified? 
making our way, pell-mell, grown-ups and children, in the eagerness to push through, someone bumped against me, driving my nose against the door jam. I can feel the pain yet, and the blinding tears. Not all the splendor of that tree could drive that pain away. After that, in a way I had of accounting for things, I attributed a slight deflection of my nose to that bump. I recall black walnut workboxes for sister, and me, and a writing desk for brother, as the most elaborate, and expensive gifts, which as children we ever received. Some years there were no gifts, except new clothing, which never satisfied the craving except once our white moss velvet hats these made our hearts light, as well as our heads. When there were no presents can one ever forget the bitter disappointment? A trivial gift means so much to an expectant child. All in vain were we told, as we sometimes were in advance, that no gifts could be afforded that year. We never quite gave up hope. But, cruel as was the disappointment, perhaps the discipline was wholesome. One year there were crosses covered with crinkly paper bedecked with wreaths of worsted flowers, and framed in deep rustic frames. What works of art! Almost equal to the hanging basket made of allspice that adorned a cousin's parlor, and to the framed pyramid of hair flowers that hung in our own.